<laughs> You're welcome. <clears throat> oh, man. Uh, happy Mother's Day. It's good to be with you guys today. You know, we only have three Sundays after this here at McCurdy's, and they've been great to us for almost six years. Um, and I was talking with Les this week about it, and he said, you know, we're going to miss you. And he says, but, uh, you know, if you have any other churches, just let them know. We'll, re- we'll, re- we'll replace you really quick. So, <clears throat> But um, we have three services here after today. I hear some music. I hear some music. Oh, somebody's, okay, it'll stop in a minute. Good. All right. So, <clears throat> um, But uh, we are here this week going through the book of Revelation. Um, two Jesuses. Does that sound bad? Does that sound like, like, like maybe heresy or something? So I'm going to read the passage and then give you some introductory statements. Okay, this is from Revelation chapter 2, 12 to 17. It is the third of seven letters from heaven that Jesus writes to specific churches in specific cities. And this is to the one in Pergamos. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Okay, that right there is a good start, right? (laughs) I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. There's those Nicolaitans again we talked about a few weeks ago. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone that no one knows except he who receives it. So, imagine a letter like this from Jesus being read aloud in community to everyone who is part of the church at Pergamos, especially those who are in earshot, the ones who compromise the gospel. Can you imagine Jesus starting off by calling your city the place where Satan's throne is? To the church in Sarasota where Satan lives, oh, wow. And imagine a little further, Jesus writing this letter to Sarasota, repent or I will war against you. I will bury you in that white quartz sand that you love so much. I will drown you with the Gulf of Mexico. (laughs) Now, if Jesus started off a letter to Sarasota like that, would it get your attention? Okay, let me have your attention. This is an important letter. Jesus introduced himself to the church at Ephesus as the one who holds the seven stars and the one who is among the seven lampstands. That's how he introduced himself. He introduced himself to the church at Smyrna as the first and the last, the one who died and rose again, who is sovereign over all who are faithful. But in this letter, he introduces himself to Pergamos as the one with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, and he's not afraid to use it. You know, we often forget... There's two sides of who Jesus is. Yes, he's the great shepherd 
holding the church in his hand, standing among the seven lampstands, the first and the last, the one who died and rose again, the one who gave his life for our sins. And it's true he will never leave us or let go of his people. But there's another side to Jesus. There's the two-edged sword, Jesus. So he says this is the city where Satan dwells. Just so you understand what Pergamum was, it was very much a pagan hotspot. Pergamos was actually the regional Roman capital of Asia Minor. It was where all the center was in that area in Asia Minor for Roman political power and authority. And it became, if you'll, if you'll allow me, let's see if I can describe this, it became the Jerusalem of pagan temples. The most popular Greco-Roman gods had their main temples of worship there, Zeus, Diana, Dionysus, and Athena. All those temples were there, and those were the big ones. These temples were in Pergamos for this reason, because there was opportunity for political connection and financial power and prestige and influence. It's kind of like why there are so many lawyers in Washington, D.C. <clears throat> Some of you may have seen, like, for example, the symbol on, like, an ambulance, you know, with the, the, the staff and then there's a snake wrapped around it, the symbol of medicine, right? The most influential temple in Pergamos was the temple of Asclepius. That was the goddess of healing. And that symbol was actually on the temple, the one that we use today for medicine. Isn't that encouraging? Desperate people hoping for healing would make long, dangerous, hard journeys only to be taken advantage of by the physicians in the temple of Asclepius under this staff with the snake around uh, the healing. The debauchery and the immorality and the worship in all these temples was so depraved it would shock you if you knew the stuff that was going on in the name of worship. And all these religions there, even though they're different, they were all collaborating under the control of Satan against the gospel and even against Judaism. This is why Satan called it, or Jesus called it, the place where Satan lives. And there was something else going on in the Roman culture, especially in Pergamos. It was kind of this thing called celebrating diversity, but there's a word that we use. It's called syncretism. Let me explain to you what it is. Romans didn't demand that you sub, uh, reject or get rid of your faith. But you did have to join the cult of Caesar worship, and then what you did after that, Rome was fine with. You could worship whoever you wanted after you did the mandatory Caesar worship. But there was also a very big kind of unspoken cultural expectation in Rome for every faith to pursue something called syncretism. You were expected to do this. Syncretism is a fancy word for the complete fusion together of multiple religions under one practice, all under the main religion, which is Caesar worship. This syncretism was a celebrated sacred duty. It wasn't in the laws, but if you didn't do it, you were canceled. Unwritten, and to be a member in good standing in the business community, the political community, the cultural community, you had to syncretize your faith with everyone else's. Refusal to syncretize your faith made you a target of the most aggressive, destructive cancel culture you could ever imagine. 
If you wanted financial success, no, let's take, if you wanted to even just be able to provide the daily bread for your family, if you wanted influence or power, if you just wanted to get along, you had to syncretize your faith with everyone else's. What did that mean? You had to accept, no, not just accept, you had to participate in all of the debauchery inside the temple feasts, orgy-like worship sessions, everything like that. You had to participate. And if you're a Christian, great. You can worship Jesus, but you also better figure out a way to worship Diana, Zeus, Caesar. So as a result, the church in Pergamos began to become filled with pagan, quote-unquote, Christians. <clears throat> this widespread pagan, immoral, sexual, chemically altered worship in these temples in Pergamos was legendary throughout the Roman Empire. Oh, you wanted to have a good time worship, go to Pergamos. It was so bad spiritually and morally, that's why Jesus called it the place where Satan's throne dwells. Christians and Jews were expected to syncretize and fit into cultural expectations or suffer being canceled. If you were a Christian hoping for any cultural acceptance or success, you had to be seen inside these pagan temples. Everyone who wanted to be successful in any way went to the temple feast. Paul talked about it in 1 Corinthians 10. Stop going to these temple feasts. And false teachers began to come into the church insisting, look, it is your duty as a Christian to syncretize so you can have influence. If you don't syncretize, nobody will hear the gospel. It's okay. Just go into the temple, participate in this worship just in the name of Jesus so you can be there. This included abandoning the idea of eternal consequences for immoral lifestyle outside of the gospel. If you remember, we studied those false teachers in our studies of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And many in the church in Pergamos chose to fuse their faith with those pagan feasts and orgies inside those temples. You know, churches today will do that, not to that degree. But churches today try to come up with a way to preach a kinder, gentler, more tolerant gospel. No two-edged sword Jesus so that we can fit in and have impact. Just imagine now, if you're a syncretist, I made up that word, <laughs> and you're hearing this letter read aloud from Jesus to the church, and Jesus is threatening war against you. Awkward. <laughs> Look at the, uh, the theological part of this. I want you to see there are two sides of Jesus. First of all, there is judgment Jesus. So he begins with this affirmation for those in Pergamos who didn't compromise, right? We see that. Even in the threat of persecution, as a matter of fact, this man Antipas that Jesus mentions apparently was a beloved elder or a pastor in the church. He was martyred, and they still, those who were faithful, did not give in to the pressure to syncretize. But then comes a scathing rebuke to those in the church who adapted the teachings of the Nicolaitans, as we learned, the same as Balaam, both those words, Nicolaitans and Balaams, mean destroyer of people through teaching that is immoral. These same people in Jesus' first letter to Ephesus, these leaders and these elders that come into the church are convincing Christians to syncretize with the culture. 
And many in Pergamos sadly gave in to these false teachers and did exactly the opposite of what the church in Ephesus did. Remember what Jesus said? You have stood against the Nicolaitans. You did not give in to them. Instead, they embraced these pagan activities, these rituals, the substance abuse and immoral activity inside the temples. And the payoff for those who did syncretize was huge. They became rich, providing highly lucrative business opportunities and cultural acceptance inside these temple communities. But Jesus commands those who have syncretized. He commands them to repent or he will come and make war against them. Now, let's just park here for a moment. The Lamb of God, with a two-edged sword, warns them to repent or he will war against them. This is critical. You know, I've heard some people say, you know, you really shouldn't talk about judgment. I'd rather hear about the meek and lowly Jesus. Well, sadly, most of the stuff I've gotten about judgment, I got from the meek and lowly Jesus. This isn't a gentle, fatherly rebuke of his children, like it was with the church in Ephesus. This is a two-edged sword Jesus is threatening to judge them with. He's saying, look, you might be afraid of Rome's swords, but you don't want Jesus to come with his sword the word of his judgment. Okay. There is the mercy Jesus, however. <clears throat> Thank goodness. He then promises those in Pergamos who overcome, the same word, by the way, Nike, Nikao, that we've learned, who will be faithful because he holds them in his hands. They will get the hidden manna, the white stone, and this new name. Now, these might seem very cryptic to us 2,000 years later, but the first century church knew exactly what these symbols meant. Like, for example, if I said basketball player number 23, what do we think? You better have been able to say that. Don't say someone else. <clears throat> this, is what, this is how familiar these symbols would have been to them. They would have known exactly what this hidden manna, the white stone, and the new name meant. First of all, the hidden manna. This is beautiful. Read this verse from John chapter 6, 49. This is Jesus. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. You remember that story when they're in the wilderness and Jesus or God fed them by manna. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. Not from the manna, just later on they died, right? <laughs> this is the bread that comes down from heaven so, no, so, so one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is the hidden manna that Jesus is talking about in his letter. He is the bread of life. Do you have ears to hear this today? More on this later. Then there's this beautiful picture of this white stone. You know, when a victor won in some sort of public sporting event, which was a big deal then, part of the victor's prize package was a very valuable custom-made white stone. And that stone also doubled, this is beautiful, that stone doubled as an admission pass to the champion's feast afterwards for everyone who won. You couldn't get in without a white stone. This white stone, Jesus describes it as an overcomer's ticket into the great marriage feast in heaven. That's what this white stone symbolizes. If you are the victor, you will get a white stone. You will be let in. You will be eating this hidden manna. The word hidden, by the way, means exclusive. 
And all this wrapped together becomes even more beautiful when you understand the new name. All those white stones that the victors would get in those sporting events were personalized. They had the victor's name etched on it so no one else could hit him over the head and take his white stone and use it. Each faithful person, Jesus says, gets their own white stone with their new name inscribed on it, and this is beautiful. It is a new identity. You know, God gave other people new identities before. The word Jacob means trickster, and God changed his name to Israel. Abram's name was changed to Abraham, which means friend of God. Simon, I'm changing your name to Peter because you are the rock that I'm building my church on. This is kind of, God has this thing. You know, I love this. Isaiah, the book of Isaiah talks about God's chosen being called by their new name about two dozen times. It's one of the most glorious benefits of our redemption and our transformation. Now, this is pure, okay, it's revelation, so I'm allowed to speculate with you, okay? But I speculate, you know, my sermon coaches this week told me not to say it. I'm going to say it anyway. I speculate that these new names are actually the ones written in the Lamb's Book of Life we will learn about later. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. And all of us are thankful for a fresh start with God, aren't we? You see how personal, this is beautiful, how personal and intimate these promises are to those who overcome? But just rewind for a minute. I want you to see that the threat of judgment was as equally personal. I mean, imagine Jesus calling you out by name, saying, Joe, I don't know you, but I am going to judge you with a two-edged sword. Now, that's personal warning too, right? I mean, the new name is really nice, and the judgment is not so nice. Personal section. A warning or a promise? So this was the sermon preview. I was a little bit late on it this week. <laughs> this morning at 7 a.m. Sooner or later, everyone will personally meet Jesus, either as their friend or as their judge. Clearly, there are two groups of people that Jesus addresses in this letter, correct? See if you can pick up on the similarities here with this. Are you ready? You're going to love this. If you love watching all the links in Scripture together, see if you can pick up the similarities with this verse in Matthew chapter 13. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Remember the parable of the wheat and the tares? That's what this is. This is Jesus teaching the same parable through a letter in different ways. This is the parable of the wheat and the weeds growing up together. The wheat is harvested and the tares are gathered and burned. Every church, grace life included, has both wheat and weeds. Those who will be at war with Jesus and those who are redeemed by him. You know, often a church can become so full of the weeds, it's hard to tell the difference between culture and the church other than maybe some hymns, some liturgy, or maybe even a steeple. That's what happened in Pergamos. And that's why Jesus wrote them this letter. Look, Grace Life as a church, we love the gospel. But is it possible there are some among us I don't like preaching these messages. 
But is it possible there are some among us like the ones Jesus warned in Pergamos? You're with us, you're among us, but you're syncretizing. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 4, 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You know, Jesus made it very clear where the line is, didn't he? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That message cannot be syncretized. We cannot be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power for our salvation against evil and the wrath that we all deserve. The gospel cannot be compromised. And as I mentioned earlier, there are churches in America who try to create that kinder, gentler gospel. Assimilating the world is not a strategy for successful growth in a church. In fact, it is a compromise of the very thing that makes the church strong and unique. Because let me tell you, if you try in your message to subtract either the two-edged sword Jesus or the no one comes to the Father but by me Jesus, your gospel message now is counterfeit, it is cheapened, it is impotent, and it is powerless to transform and save lives who desperately need to be saved and transformed. Okay, let me just cut to the chase. Even if it makes me sound like a Bible thumper for just a few minutes, or even if it makes some of you uncomfortable, for every person... This passage is a very personal letter from Jesus. Either it's a personal warning or a personal promise. This is true right now, this moment, for each person in this room, or those of you watching on the live stream, or those who will be watching the restream later. Either the intimate promises of the hidden manna, the white stone, and the new name are for you, or the very personal warning of the lamb with the two-edged sword that will bring war on everything and everyone that is evil. That one could be for you. Some of you are too syncretized with this life. It's success. It's political obsession. It's glamour. It's immorality. And it's empty promises. Only you and God know for sure if you are in that boat. But if so, this passage is a very personal, awkward, somber warning for you to repent. You don't want to face the two-edged sword. <sighs> okay, good. Done with that. <laughs> I love that. We, we, we studied this verse last week, remember? And we learned what the word nikao means and who is he that overcomes? Here it is. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes, Nikao, Nike, overcomes, conquers the world. And this is the victory, Nike, that has overcome or conquers the world, our faith. Who is he that Nikes? Who is he that overcomes? The world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is what overcoming means. See, this passage is also a very personal, intimate, precious promise from our Savior for those who have ears that hear his voice. Remember that? My sheep hear my voice. And follow me. If you have this faith, 
that overcomes, that conquers, that Nikes the world. You have been given the exclusive hidden bread of life. You have been given the victor's stone with a secret name etched on it, a new identity. Jesus has given you. So would you like to know today which one of these is for you? Wouldn't it be great to know whether or not you are under the threat of the judgment or under the promise of grace? Come on, Pastor Joe, we got to hear it. Tell us. Look what he says in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, and then he goes on with the promises. If you have ears to hear, when we read this passage, listen carefully. Your heart and mind, when you hear about the two-edged sword, your heart and mind should pause. You should probably intellectually, spiritually, emotionally lean in just a little bit and listen up. You should become a little bit introspective. Oh, my goodness, which one is me? The fact that you even wonder which one is you proves what? That you have been given ears to hear. It proves that the faith has been given to you to have the ability to understand that there are two sides. There are two sides of Jesus, and you recognize two things. First of all, how scary the two-edged sword Jesus is but also how precious Savior Jesus is as well. If you desire to be one that eats of the hidden manna, the bread of life, if you're one that desires the white stone with your name etched on it more than you desire the world's bread or the world's trophies or the world's praise, then congratulations, child of God, you have ears to hear. You will overcome, and these promises are for you. Now, if you don't really care, you might have an issue. But because you have faith to overcome, 1 John 5, 4 and 5, this isn't a scary letter from Jesus. For you, it's a precious, intimate, personal, comforting letter. It is a reason for you to leave this public community reading of Revelation today, rejoicing because you have ears to hear. So with that in mind, I'm just going to, well, can you let me back up? This is uh, at the very last second, so it's not your fault. Sorry, this is how I'm going to end it today. Just pretend like you're not seeing all that. Okay. <laughs> Let's read it. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write these words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon in war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. How did you respond? You can know for sure. And if you heard that, and you desire that white stone, that hidden manna, and your name etched, 
you have reason to leave this public community reading of Revelation today rejoicing because it's very clear you have ears to hear. <clears throat> Jesus, sometimes we don't like to acknowledge the two-edged sword side of you, but we do acknowledge you have authority to judge. You have the power to judge evil and sin. <clears throat> but we do love the mercy, Jesus. Because we as children of God recognize how desperately we need it. We so desperately need the bread of life. We crave it. We're hungry for it. We so desperately need that white stone that will get us into the marriage feast. We so desperately want it. We so desperately want a new identity, a new name. We want to be transformed by the power of your spirit and your truth. We want that. We don't want to be the old person we are, we were. And so with that, Lord Jesus, we celebrate these empty or these, these incredibly uh, beautiful, precious promises and we empty ourselves of the fear of facing you as judge and lord for those who maybe for the first time today have begun to consider hmm which personal greeting in this letter is for me i pray that you would give them ears to hear that you would enlighten them that you would call them to yourself give them to eat of the bread of life Give them the white stone. Make them a new creation. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you guys next week for week six. Go and rejoice if you have ears to hear.